0: With me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're new with us, we are teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. The rest of this chapter deals with a very important subject, and that is the subject of communion or the Lord's Supper really only two things that the Lord commanded us as believers to do in the area of symbolism or ritual and those two things are number one baptism which is a a picture of our identification with Jesus in his death in his burial and his in his resurrection and the other is communion where we take the bread and the cup and we remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus given in his death on our behalf. And since Jesus commanded us to do those things, we need to put a high priority on them. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34 is an important passage because it deals with the Lord's Supper. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been dealing with many problems in the church at Corinth. They had problems like being divided up into various factions. They had problems like people... Suing other people within the church. They had problems like people being involved in open immorality. They had problems like people abusing their liberty. And now we find there was another problem in the church at Corinth. They came together for the Lord's Supper and they had turned it into a drunken fiasco, they had turned it into a real mockery of the Lord. And that's a serious offense. In fact, we find out in verse 30 that the Lord considered this a capital offense because he actually took some believers home because of their behavior in this area. And so I want us this morning to learn from their mistakes. And before we begin, let me just set some background for this passage. The night before his death, the Lord Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. That was a feast to commemorate God's deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. Now, you remember that Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh refused. And so God brought the plagues on Egypt. And the final plague in those series of plagues was that the death angel would pass over the land and he would kill the firstborn son in every household. And there was only one remedy for that, and that was that each family was to take an unblemished lamb, sacrifice that lamb, put the blood on their doorposts and on their lintel, and God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Whenever the Jew wanted to remember God as deliverer, remember God as Savior, he went back in his mind to that deliverance from Egypt, And every year they had a Passover feast when they specifically remembered their deliverance from Egypt. In the context of that feast, the Lord Jesus sat down the night before he went to the cross and he took the bread and he took the cup from that Passover feast and he inaugurated a new celebration. He transformed the Passover feast into the Lord's Supper. And so we don't go back to Egypt to remember God as Savior. We go back to Calvary. We don't go back to a blood-stained door. We go back to a blood-stained cross. We don't go back and remember the shedding of a lamb's blood. We go back and remember the shedding of the lamb of God's blood for us. And so Jesus established a new feast for us to remember him by. And that's an important feast because if you go to the Gospels, you'll find that this is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's alluded to in John 13. And it's recorded for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this was a major priority in the early church. I wanted you to take your Bible, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 11, and go back to Acts chapter 2 at the beginning of the church I want you to notice what happens right at the beginning of the church Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 says so then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 3,000 people get saved. The church is born on this day. They are devoting themselves, it says in verse 42, to four things, teaching, fellowship, prayer, and the breaking of bread. And if you slide down to verse 46, it says, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house. Now, the indication there is that they were breaking bread every day from house to house. Now, that phrase, breaking bread, is a phrase that was common in that day because that was a phrase used for having a meal together, or having a fellowship meal. Um, If you're like me, when I eat at somebody's house, I'm always, the first thing I'm thinking when I sit down at the table, you know, you got all the food there. And you're kind of thinking, you know, what is it that really kicks this baby off? You know, when do I get to really go after the food? And you want to be careful that you don't just jump in there and then find out there's some traditions you didn't know about in the household. Some, Some households say a prayer of blessing, which I think is an honorable thing and a right thing to do. Some hold hands and sing the doxology. You don't know what you're in for, you know. Whatever it takes to get to the meal. In that day, the host at the end of the table would take bread, he would break the bread, and that would be the sign that everybody could partake. Later in Acts uh, chapter 27 and verse 35, it says Paul gave thanks and broke bread and distributed it to those on the ship. When Jesus multiplied the loaves, what did he do? He gave thanks, and he broke the bread, and he distributed it to them. So the breaking of bread was, that, was, was a reference not only to the Lord's Supper, but it was also a reference to any kind of fellowship meal. Any meal together was a breaking of bread. And, and some have taken this verse 46 to simply mean they, they ate together. But if you look at verse 46, it says, "...day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple..." And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So there there seems to be this idea they were taking meals together, and in the context of taking meals together, they were also breaking bread, this thing that they were committed to doing in remembrance of the Lord. In fact, some would suggest that every meal they had, because the most common thing on a table when you had a meal in the first century was bread and wine. They were taking those two most common elements which Jesus told us to take and remember his body and his blood. And the indication is that they did this on a daily basis as they met together from house to house. In fact, in the early church, it actually became the context in which they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They would have a fellowship meal together and then in the context of that meal, they would break the bread. And here in Acts chapter 2, this is really just an expression of the fact that they shared their very lives together. They shared their lives together, they shared their meals together, and they shared communion together. In verse 41, it says 3,000 people were saved. They were not all from Jerusalem. In fact, many of them had come, many miles, to come to, uh, to the day of Pentecost, which was, Pentecost means 50, it was 50 days after the day of first fruits. The day of first fruits is actually the day Easter. It's the day Jesus rose from the dead on the day of first fruits, And 50 days later, they were coming to celebrate Pentecost. And if you look in Acts chapter 2, at verses 9 to 11, you'll see that these people came from all over the place. So they came to celebrate the feast. They got saved. And they weren't going home. They stayed in Jerusalem. Now, when they stayed in Jerusalem, far from their homes, they had some needs. And notice what it says in chapter 2 and verse 44. It says, And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. I love that because that's love in action. There were people there who had nothing, and they were showing real koinonia, fellowship. That means sharing with. It's not just, hey, how you doing, brother? God bless you. They were sharing their possessions with each other as anyone had need. They loved each other more than they loved their own possessions. And this is really an expression of what communion is. It's sharing together. This is communism at its best. This is sharing with the right heart and the right attitude. Back in the day when uh, being a hippie was the thing to do. At the University of Wisconsin, they promoted the idea, because they used bicycles there a lot to ride around the campus, they promoted the idea that you would paint your bicycle white. And if you painted your bicycle white, it meant it was common property. So you would ride your bicycle, you wouldn't chain it up to a post, you would just leave it there. If somebody else saw that your bicycle was white, they could just ride off with your bicycle and you came out and found another white bicycle and you rode off on it. It's a great idea if nobody's selfish. It really didn't work on the University of Wisconsin campus, but it worked in the church when it got started because everybody shared their property in common because they had Christ's love for each other. And they met together, had meals together, and in the context of that meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. In fact, uh, later in, in the little book of Jude, which is the little book you sometimes skip, it's right before Revelation, verse 12, it tells us this meal was called a love feast. They met together and had this, what they called a love feast as they met together, and they would, in that context, have the Lord's Supper together. Now, in the early church, they did it every day. If you take your Bible and turn over to Acts chapter 20, we kind of see a transition, because in Acts chapter 20, in verse (coughs) 7, sorry, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. As things went by, apparently the church started to meet on the first day of the week, started to meet once a week. And what was the center of their meeting? It says they met together to break bread. And Paul happened to be there, and he preached. Now, if that was happening today, it would be, Paul's here. We're not going to do the breaking of bread. But they met together to have the breaking of bread. That was the center of their meeting, and Paul happened to be in town, and he preached to them. Now, this is the occasion where he preached till midnight, and Eutychus fell out of the window and died, and he went down and raised him from the dead, and everybody woke up. And uh, it says in verse 11, after that, then he says, they broke bread. So they, they met together. The context of the, of the early church was their, their church meeting consisted of a meal, a message, and communion. Now, you have to remember that in the early church, the first day of the week, Sunday, was a work day. It wasn't like our Sunday. It's not, not the day of rest that we view it in our country. It was the first day. Of the, the day of rest was Saturday, the Sabbath, so they met on the first day of the week, which was a work day. So they worked all day, and then they gathered together in the evening, had supper together, a message, and communion. In fact, in our passage, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 20, it's called the Lord's Supper. And that word supper means, just like what our supper means, it was an evening meal. That's when they had church, in the evening, after working all day on the first day of the week. And so that's what the way... Coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that's the way they practiced it in 1 Corinthians with a love feast and communion and a message. Only they had turned this love feast into a drunken, gluttonous, selfish disaster. They had totally obliterated the meaning of the love feast. And then when it was followed by the Lord's Supper, it made God sick. In fact, it made God so sick that he made some of them sick, and they died. Jesus had broken down all the walls between people, and here 20 years later, they were putting the walls back up. We read in this passage that, they were, that the rich were coming and eating their food and not sharing it with the poor. And so they were building the walls back up, and God was not happy with that. And so, what I want us to do as we look at these strong words from the Apostle Paul is I want to learn some things from what he has to say here. Look at verse 17. It says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Now, if you remember back in verse 2 of this chapter, he said, I praise you. I praise you that you remember me, and I praise you that you are holding to the traditions But now he says, and what I'm about to say to you, I don't praise you anymore. So what he's going to say here are things that tell us why this church is unpraiseworthy. Or, as I've entitled this, four characteristics that we don't want to have as a church. The church we don't want to be, number one, is a church that makes people worse, not better. Notice verse 17 again. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Being together in church is the worst thing that you can do. Can you imagine me getting up and saying that to you? You would be better off to stay home. Those are strong words. The more you meet together the worse you get. I talked to a girl recently and she was talking about the church she grew up in and she said, I wish that they would just fold up and close the doors. Well, that's what Paul is essentially saying here. He's saying, you are better off not to meet at all. Our purpose is as a church is to present everyone complete in Christ. The church at Corinth was accomplishing the very opposite. Rather than moving people toward Christ, they were moving people away from Christ. Rather than getting better, they were getting worse. The Greek word for worse is a word that means moral evil. Rather than meeting together and celebrating and having fellowship and love and spiritual enrichment, they were displaying selfish indulgence. They were shaming their poor brothers and sisters. They were mocking the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And they were becoming a scandal in the eyes of the world around them. And so Paul says, you're not getting better. You're getting worse. Years ago, I went with a pastor friend to a pastor's conference in Nashville. And uh, it was a conference that turned out to be um, kind of a conference filled with with criticism and divisiveness. All they talked about was criticizing other churches and criticizing each other. And it was this kind of of a setting that, that you just felt uncomfortable in the setting. It was just we went there to get encouraged, and we were discouraged the whole time we were there. And I remember getting in the car to drive home, and I turned to him, and I said, well, what did you think of the conference? And he said, I feel like going out and getting drunk. And I said, you know what? That's about the way I feel too. You know, you go to a conference, and you want to be encouraged, and you're discouraged. You go to get better, and you go away feeling worse. And that was characteristic of the church at Corinth. They came together, and Paul says, you should be coming together to better each other in the Lord. Instead, you're coming together and ending up worse off than you started. Second thing we don't want to be as a church is a place, not people. Now, this was not true of the church at Corinth, but it's true of many churches today. Look at verse 18. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church. Now, notice that phrase you come together as a church. Church is never used of a building. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. Ek means out, klesia means called. The church is a called-out group of people, called out from the world. Now, unfortunately, our word church today in our English vocabulary is a religious term. In the first century Greek, it was a common word. It was a word that meant crowd, assembly, group, mob. It was just a group of people. That's what church meant. And probably if we simply use that word today, it would remind us That church is not a building. Church is people. And when we talk about the church, we need to realize the church is made up of believers in Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons why when we decided to name our building, we didn't call it a church. We called it Cape Bible Chapel. Because we wanted to make the distinction, this building is a chapel, it's not the church. You are the church. Kind of like that, that old thing where you go, here's, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, here's all the people. Well, that's theologically wrong. Okay, it's here's the chapel. We don't have a steeple. <laughs> open the doors, there's the church. The church is the people. And we need to keep that in mind. It's not a building. It's not some place you come to and have reverence in. You are the church. You are the body of Christ. If you're a believer, we all make up that church. And when we come together, we are the church. Now, our problem is we tend to call our people the chapel. So we, we mess up, too. Because I hear people say, you know, the chapel is having a picnic. Well, the chapel's not going anywhere. Or, I want to invite the chapel to my wedding. Well, the chapel will be there (laughs) if you get married here. You know, we, we, we always have problems with this in the way we say it, but we need to understand that the church is not a place. The church is the people. And that's an important distinction. Third. Third thing we don't want to be as a church This church was divided, not unified. Look at verse 18 again. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. Now, when Paul says in the first place, you expect a second place. But if you slide down the passage, you don't find any second place. He's not like me. He gives you four points and I stick to them. He says point number one, and there is no point number two. So he's really not giving this as a point of chronology. He's giving it as a point of emphasis. He's saying this is the real issue. And what is the real issue that he wants to focus on? Divisions exist among you. He says when you come together as the church, you're not really coming together as the church because you have divisions among you. Now, this is the first problem Paul dealt with way back in chapter 1. And in chapter 1 in verse 10, he said, there are divisions among you. And in verse 11, he said, there are quarrels among you. So whenever this church gathered together, they were bickering with, with each other, and they were quarreling with each other. The word divisions means literally to tear something apart. When they got together, rather than experiencing unity and fellowship, they were all torn apart and fragmented into little groups. There were certain groups that followed certain teachers. Some said, I'm of Paul. Some said, I'm of Peter. Some said, I'm of Apollos, Some said, I'm more spiritual. I'm of Christ. They had all their little groups. Socially, we see in this passage, they were divided, the rich from the poor. Had all kinds of cliques All kinds of divisions within the church. You know what causes that? We don't have to guess. Because Paul told us in this book. If you just slide back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He tells us in verse 3 what causes this. He says, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I of Paul and another, I of Apollos, are you not mere men? The telltale sign in your life that you are not where you need to be spiritually is unresolved quarrels. It's division. When you, when you come to church and say, I'm just going to walk around and not try to see that person. That's not a minor issue. Paul says, that's the sign of fleshliness in your life. That's the symptom that should tell you something is wrong in my life. I've been sick all week. People say, are you sick? I say, no, I've just got a cough and a runny nose. And uh, I've been watching the symptom. The symptom I've been looking for is fever. Well, I got that. When you get a fever, you kind of go, well, maybe I am sick. You you look at things and go, "That's, that's not that bad. Well, Paul's saying when this happens, it's the symptom that you are not walking spiritually. You are walking in your flesh. And that's why... When we go back to chapter 1, we find this is, of all the problems in Corinth, this is the first one he dealt with, chronologically. And now he tells us in chapter 11, it's the first thing, priority-wise as well, because it is the root of your problem. When you have quarrels and divisions among the body of Christ, it is a symptom that you are seriously sick. You see, disunity in a church is a fearful thing. Because it is the surest sign of spiritual sickness. Because it is the very opposite of what we ought to be as the church. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, if you have the opposite of love, which is division within the body, Paul says it's a serious, serious issue. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 18. He says, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. He says, there are certain factions that must exist in a church. Now, what's he referring to? Remember when Jesus said that in the church, there will be wheat and there will be tares. That's the way it's always going to be. There will be those who are professors of faith and those who are possessors of faith. So Paul is saying there must be some divisions in the church because as the church gathers together, there will be those who say, yes, I'm a Christian, and they're not really a Christian. And there will be those who say, I'm a Christian, and they really are a Christian. And he's saying those distinctions need to be there. But in this context, he's also saying, I've already told you that you have a church full of carnal, fleshly Christians And so I want there to be a division between those who stand up and stand out for Christ and those who are fleshly. There has to be a division because if you're going to stand out for Christ, you're going to have to step out from the status quo and be separated from them. And that word approved means literally to pass a test. And believe me, it is a test to be among people who are critical and divisive, and for you to be a person of unity in that context. And yet there were some in the church at Corinth who, even in the midst of all of this division and all of this criticism and all of this going on, they were standing for Christ and they were being united in him. Now, don't conclude from this verse that divisiveness should be tolerated in the church. Because Paul said in Titus 3 10 and 11, reject a factious man. Factious means divisive. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self condemned. Divisiveness is not just disruptive to a church, it's destructive. To a church. And those who are divisive, Paul says, you need to warn them, and then you need to warn them again, and then you need to put them out. Corinth was a church filled with people like that. They were divided and not united. And that's the church we don't want to be. And then, fourthly, the characteristic of the church we don't want to be is a church that's all about you and not about the Lord. Notice verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. Now, if you ask them, they were meeting together to have the Lord's supper. But Paul says, in reality, that's not what you're doing. You see, you have the ritual, but you don't have the reality. You have the form, but you don't have the substance. Paul says, you may be breaking bread, and you may be passing the cup, and you may be repeating some words that Jesus said, but what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper because Jesus has no part in it. What were they celebrating? Look at verse 20 again. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. Hmm. They weren't celebrating the Lord's Supper. What were they celebrating? Their own supper. They were coming, and their purpose in coming was, I want to get my belly full. I want to be satisfied. It's all about me. They weren't singing, it's all about you, Jesus. They were singing, it's all about me. You ever come to church that way? Woe is me. I hope Dan's good today because I'm tired. I hope I get something out of this. I hope she doesn't talk to me. I'm so sick of her. It's all about my supper instead of his supper. Notice verse 21 again. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry they had a potluck meal and in that context more than half the church were slaves they were poor people and so they would have this potluck supper and the the poor people would come expecting to get some of the rich people's food and in Corinth they would go home not only physically hungry but spiritually hungry as well. So they had a potluck supper and the rich brought their pot and ate their pot and kept it away from the poor. Let's have a potluck and we'll sit over here with our family in the corner and eat our own food and you can't have any of it. It's quite a contradiction because back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17 it tells us, That the bread not only symbolizes the body of Jesus, but it symbolizes the body of Christ, the church. And it says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one. So they met together, ate their own food, and kept it away from the other people. And then they said, all right, now let's share the bread and the cup. What hypocrisy. You can't have my lasagna But let's share the bread and cup together and remember the Lord. That's the hypocrisy that was happening in the church at Corinth. It was all about you, not the Lord. And then notice the end of verse 21. He says, one is hungry and another is drunk. Wow. They came together as a church, and there were people that got drunk at the love feast. I've heard people say that the, the, the wine in the New Testament time was not really wine like we have. It was non-alcoholic wine. Well, you'd have to drink a lot of grape juice to get drunk. They, they were, this was real wine. They were using this wine. They were, there were some who were getting drunk on this wine. And so Paul, as you might guess, is completely frustrated. And look what he says in verse 22. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? If if it's going to be your meal, eat it in your house before you come to church. If it's all about you, do it somewhere else. Do it at home. Don't you have a house to eat in? Why would you come and eat all your food in front of everybody else? Or do you despise the church of God? Are you just coming here because you hate the church? Is that why you're choosing to do this? And shame those who have nothing. Do you just get a kick out of shaming poor people? Is that why you're doing this? And it's, and it's like he just throws his hands in the air and says, What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? In this, I will not praise you. They came to church for it to be all about them, and Paul makes them feel pretty bad. Let me close by making this positive. Because Paul says, really, these are four marks of a church that he can't praise. So I want to flip that around on the positive side and say here are four marks of a church that he could praise. And that's who we want to be. We want to be, number one, a church that makes people better and not worse. Secondly, we want to be a church that views itself as people and not just a place. Third, we want to be a church that is unified and not divided. And fourth, we want to be a church that is all about the Lord and not about you and not about me. A church, essentially he's saying that a church that is praiseworthy is a church that is filled with praise toward the Lord with a united voice. It's like he says in Romans 15, that we would have one voice with which to glorify God. That's the church he praises, one that is united in purpose, united in fellowship, united in love, and in that united effort, we are giving praise alone to him. I'm going to ask that we close our service by having the praise team come back. We're going to sing that song, It's All About You, Jesus. And as we close our service, I'm just going to ask you to stand with us and sing this in closing, and let's make this our prayer to the Lord. It's not about me, it's about him. And if your heart needs changing and adjusting today, then I ask you to make this your prayer before the Lord as we close our service. If there are those who want someone to pray with you, you can come forward as we close our service together. Let's really mean business with the Lord as we speak to him in closing today.